It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, I'm Dr. Drance, and I took a left at the valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists, you know. We don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith in unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Atheist, atheist. Coming at you from Sweaty Abbotsford, D.C., this is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin, and I ask you, why is a third hand on a watch called a second hand? <laughs> Joining me as usual this evening, who will make you wonder if a word is misspelled in the dictionary, how would you know? <laughs> Google it, that's right. She wonders, why does fat chance and slim chance mean the same thing? Nancy. Uh, yeah, let's go back to the spelling one. I like that question. <laughs> I like that one better. <laughs> and he wonders why we call it after dark when it's really after light. Scott. Wow. Hey, okay, that was good. I like that. <laughs> you got me thinking on that one. And she also wonders why do we press harder on the button on the remote when we know the batteries are dead? Because it just has to listen. <laughs> I'm always right. There we go. Guys, welcome back. We're going to have a good show today. We're going to have our old friend Jonathan Baker is coming back to talk to us today about the Paris Climate Accord. And of course, we're going to make... Boy, timing couldn't be better. Exactly. Especially in the wake of uh, Hurricane Harvey. So, But first, let's do a bit of chit-chat. Well, speaking of Hurricane Harvey, but we got to talk, of course, about Joel Olstein, oh. which is the... Uh, <laughs> pastor of the mega church called Lakewood Church. This is a church of uh, 16, 17,000 capacity. And Mr. Olstein, being the good Christian that he is, yep. decided to not open the church doors to flooding victims. Don't! Well, they might get his seats dirty. Yeah, exactly. You know, and then they have to you know, you get those nasty people sitting on his high-priced seats. Yeah. You know. Uh, this, this this is just amazing because uh, what he he tweeted out that he couldn't open a church because of flooding. Uh, so what people did is they actually went to the church yeah. with their cameras and their their phones and all that and started showing live videos. No, there's no flooding here at all. The yeah. church is actually built way above the ground there. And yeah, uh, I think it was the basement that was flooding. Yeah, apparently there might have been that. So the so the social pressure has uh, kind of forced Olsen to come out and say, "Fine, we'll open the church doors." But then. <laughs> Olsen took to Twitter to ask for $50, $100, and $200 donations to help the flood victims. Yeah. And yeah. then, to make it even better, then he opened the church, apparently this weekend, to, to do a service with the flood victims in there and was passing around the collection plate. Oh, really? 
I didn't. Oh. I didn't hear that. Didn't hear that. that last. I, I've been in that church when his dad was the was the pastor before Joel came on the scene, and it's like an amphitheater. Yeah. You can have a rock contest. You could have a boxing match. You can have anything in there. And the seats, the seats are are raised. You know, like a like mm. an amphitheater. It used to be. It used it's to be massive. A, it used to house a local uh, basketball team. I think it's a Houston Astros or something like that. I don't know because that church has been there since the since the eighties at least, which is when when I was in there. And um, it's it, probably build a church too. Yeah, I, I don't know how many beds it would it would hold, but you know, people would would at least be able to be in there in the oh, lobby yeah. and in other in other areas. I mean, so. it's it says sixteen to seventeen thousand capacity. That's like yeah. seating, but it, that's a large church. It's a large. Yeah. It's a mega it's church. Huge. But I mean, it's huge. they have a not. they have a gift shop, a yeah. bookshop. Hold that many people in there because you have to make little beds and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, they have class. I think they have some classrooms oh, sure and do. some offices, so the people could, uh, you know, be very very comfortable in there. But the fact that he first of all doesn't want to open it, and then he has to be shamed mm-hmm. into it, yeah. and then you know he asks people for donations. It's just how, you know how Sick. dumb do you have to yeah. be to go along with? Yes, this is a Christian church that that's there to help everybody. Exactly. And then of course after that he went on to to the press when the CNN and all that were asking him about the situation, and he was saying, uh, "Well, the the city didn't ask us <laughs> to, to house good Christian values right there, right? Yeah. The city didn't ask us. You need permission yeah. apparently <laughs> to do charity." Obviously, you know, God, as you were saying on your Facebook, God wasn't speaking to him because God didn't ask <laughs> That's him right. either. God, God didn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, uh, there was also a, another statistic going around that apparently only 4% of all churches in Houston have been accepting uh, flood survivors and, and people that have been displaced. Now, I understand that some of these churches are probably flooded, mm-hmm. but I really find it hard to believe that 96% of those churches in Houston are flooded and only 4% of them could, yeah. yeah. So it always goes a wonderful stat that says uh, to feed by themselves of the population of the planet, the American churches, they make over $80 billion a year. Wow. So if you ever wonder about Christianity and charity, it's not about saving the poor. It just isn't. Because just the Americans, the American churches by themselves could do it. So you think of all the European churches, Canadian churches, churches worldwide, there is no reason whatsoever for poverty unless we really want it. Mm-hmm. Most of the churches that are, are, are open in the, in the Houston area, I don't know this for a fact, but the black churches mm-hmm. are just incredibly good yeah. about everybody gets together and they help each other and they they do everything that they that they can. They may not be able to use the building itself but they're a very powerful social yes. force and uh, looking at what's been going on this past week just people in general coming together and and helping has has been a, a life life-saving you know for for the people who have been stranded and and trapped which of course I've got, I don't I don't have the numbers here but the, the funny thing about all this is the local mosques in Houston, did open their doors. Yeah, I'm sure. And they're actually rescuing people. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm no fan say, of Islam. Doesn't that say something? Yeah, I'm no fan of Islam, but come on, guys. They're doing it right. Well, you gotta, you got to ask now. Uh, their God is a loving God and an all-knowing God and an all-seeing God. And, well, he's omni, omniscient. Omnipresent. 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 Omnipotent. Omniscient. Omniscient. 
Omniscient. Means know, yeah, it means he knows and, everything. And yeah, he knows everything. He can do anything. Um, how come all these churches got, got sidelined in the flood? <laughs> exactly. That's what they say. Must not have been good Christians there, huh? Yeah, exactly. That's what they say. That's what they say. The they, they debate between science and religion was won as soon as uh, churches started putting uh, uh, lightning rods on their churches. <laughs> oh my that's when the debate was done. Okay. Um, but we do wish, since we're on the topic, we oh yeah. do wish people down there well. It's of course. a horrible, I, I horrible experience. And we're going to be talking much more about this uh, today as well. Okay. Um, also, speaking of flood, uh, what you might not have heard, though, is there was a lot of flooding happening on the other side of the planet. India, Tibet, yeah, and uh, Bangladesh. Uh, apparently, over 1,200 people have been killed. Mm-hmm. 1,200? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, right ridiculous. now is the monsoon wow. over there for them, cool. and they're getting hit real hard. Thousands of villages have been hit, uh, monsoon season, and over 7 million people are affected in just in Bangladesh. That's just Bangladesh alone. Mm-hmm. Uh. So, uh, of course, the, the flood in Houston and all that is making all the headlines, but on the other side of the planet, these people are getting their ass kicked big time. Well, how many people live in Houston? It's the fourth largest city in the U.S. Is it? Yeah, it is. Oh, wow. It's massive. I, I, I'm it's really big, bad on numbers, so I, I have no idea. Oh, it's got to be like three, 4,000. <laughs> but to, to, to rebuild and to rehab mm-hmm. and to do what it takes to restore that area oh, is going to be... it's going to be huge. Ma- and huge. all of those people who can't go to work or work is closed or you know trying to get their lives back it's yeah. going to take a and the refineries and yeah. the coast and all that oh, yeah. the price of oil is going to climb up because well yeah. Houston's a major it's a major hub for Energy. for commerce and, port. and business yeah right? it's a major port yeah it's a major hub for business and commerce so i mean to have it sidelined like this a major mm. catastrophe is going to be a huge uh, hit on the American economy. Well, the, the oil refined, the oil company has a zillion plus dollars. They'll put it all back into getting uh, everything up, and then they'll overcharge everybody for gas to get it back. Are you sure they won't just ask for government aid? Yeah. Probably. <laughs> but they already do get subsidies. They already get that. Yeah. Did you guys hear that astronomers have discovered 15 short bursts of radio signal? coming from outer space. They're just milliseconds long, and they're called the FRB-121102. What's interesting is it's a, it's a signal that's repeating. Hmm. So it could be a pulsar, or it could be something else. So Aliens a, rocking out? Maybe so. It's estimated <laughs> that when this signal left, the Earth would have been only 2 billion years old. Oh, wow. So it's a very old signal. So it's very interesting. Keep an eye on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you also, you guys also hear that uh, Edmonton University McEwen has lost $11.8 million to fraud? No! Huh. University in Edmonton, yeah. It's actually, an e- they got an email from a vendor that requested a change in banking info, and oh that was like gosh. a phishing scam. Oh, no. The staff failed to, to verify, and the accounts traced it back to Montreal and Hong Kong. Wow. How much? $11.8 million oh. they lost. Holy cow. Yeah. Yes. And that's a university that's supposed university. to be up on all of the these latest the, technology. These are the smart people. These are the smart people. <laughs> Some heads are going to roll there somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, did you guys hear about the Johnny McDonald controversy? No, I haven't. Uh, you know, oh, we, t- yes. we talked for the past couple of shows, we talked about how they're taking down Confederate statues. Yeah. Well, there are the Ontario of, uh, Union of uh, Teachers, of elementary school teachers, wants the schools that are named Johnny McDonald renamed. Because the first uh, prime minister was also uh, partly responsible for the uh, educational uh, boondoggle mm. that was the residential schools yeah. for the natives. Um, how do you guys feel about this? I'd be okay with it. 
You'd be okay with that? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm partially okay with it. I think because of what's going on in, in the states, uh, because of the, the statues there where you have um, Confederate leaders who were involved in slavery and mm-hmm. oppression and then the Jim Crow laws and things like that. I, I can understand that spilling over to what's needed here. And I think it's going to take a while to sort out um, what what's valid history and what are, are tokens of, of oppression. Mm-hmm. But and basically, if people want to change the name of, of a school to something else, why not? I, I somewhat disagree with that um, because um, in, my, in my mind, you cannot judge a person of the past using the moral standards of today. Uh, John McDonald probably was racist, like probably most people back then. Um, but he's also not known for building the residential schools. He, he's the first Canadian prime minister. Robert E. Lee, for example, was known for leading the Union, yeah. the, 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 uh, the, uh, the Confederate Army against the, the, the United States. So I can understand why you want to take that one down. John McDonald, when you think of John McDonald, you don't think of residential school right away. So I, I, don't, think, I don't think it's... it's yeah, it's not, it's not really a fair thing. And at what point do you start tearing into history... And erasing history, because mm-hmm. that's very close to some of the dystopian to- stories that, yeah. uh, that well, have made. I, well, I, would, I would say that if you're going to be renaming a school, don't, don't like, just totally non-acknowledge that. Like, make sure that all the students are educated in all aspects of what that the first prime minister did. Like, there were good things he did, mm-hmm. and there were also bad things, and teach them the ramifications of that and how so much culture was lost to those schools and like help use it as yeah use use it it as as an educational tool well going back to what you said kevin a minute ago in terms of you know uh, from your perspective you know it it, you're you're not that upset or what i forgot i I was going to make a point and then i forgot exactly but you were saying from your perspective and it's well yeah but you're white and you weren't you know your culture was not hurt or damaged or abused so you have to look at it from who who's who was harmed who is being harmed and what history is important to both you know at this point i, I understand that but at the same if if, if for example it also depends on the school you got to take it case by case right yeah. if it was a residential school that was named after john mcdonald i think you get a point oh okay but if it's little elementary school in suburban toronto i i don't see the point of doing that i really don't neither I, do i if, if there was a statue erected of the person, I don't know who that person would be, that actually came up with the idea of residential school and built them, whichever person in history did that, and I don't think mm-hmm. it's John and McDonald, uh, that I can understand. Take down that statue because whenever you look at that statue, it just, it's just a constant reminder of that. Uh, but the, the, the first prime minister we had, I don't think, was that kind of a figure. I mean, and of course, all men and women of his age, of any age, was wrong in so many aspects. A statue that we would erect to Nancy today might be taken down 200 years from now because they'll find Nancy anti-Christian yeah. or something. No, or they'll, they'll, That's they'll, why they'll I'm 2,000 years and, old. And I'm is, sure I've, there are some where, things in my past nobody this appreciates. This is where you have to be really careful. I mean, they just took down, uh, what was it, uh, Cornwallis. They had the big problem out east with Cornwallis. Mm-hmm. Uh, General Cornwallis was instrumental in the British... Uh, war against 
the Americans, mm -hmm. the War of 1812. Yep. Okay, so... Where we kicked our asses. Well, no, no, but uh, at what point do you start erasing the history? Mm -hmm. Because now what you're saying is this person shouldn't even be looked at because they were racist and they, they treated natives badly. Well, yeah, they did treat natives badly, right, and, and use that as a teaching tool. Yeah, definitely. But that does not tarnish or, or degrade the good works that that person yeah. did, and that's what we celebrate. That person helped create the Canada that we know now. Mm -hmm. And without them, we wouldn't be in the country we're in now. Mm -hmm. So we might want to look at John A. Macdonald. He was the first prime minister, and he helped orchestrate those first four provinces coming together to form a country. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have the country we have. So let's stop tearing down our history and start learning to accept that, yes, these people did bad things and teach people about it. Yeah. Well, I, I think this is a great, that. I think this is the discussion that should be had. I think it should oh, be messy. I think it should be vociferous. I think everybody should participate. And I think, too, you know, one of the questions is, is there, you know, is it important to honor these people in the past with a statue? And we were talking about visible objects that are oh, not worship, but they're in, the, these people are enshrined in in public images. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. If these people are in the history books, they're not being erased. Yeah. People are being taught about them. It's just a matter of how do you honor people and who is deserving of public honor. But however this discussion goes, I really think it's going to end up in some upsets, and I think it's going oh, to yeah. end up in some really good things and some challenges. But it's it's great. I think that, that yeah. I think it ought to go on and on until it, it, it people just, feel, people who are part of whatever country it is, on balance, feel, feel good about it. It just feels to me like it's a bit of the, the swing of the pendulum, a bit too far on the other side there. The reaction is a bit too much. I mean, it's, yeah. could I say, you know, should we take a dismantle the Trans-Canadian Railroad because a lot of Chinese people died well, building it? Well, I, I right? think that all of our nuclear medicine should now disappear because the reactors that make that nuclear medicine possible were created out of the out of the uh, World War II effort, the Manhattan Project. Exactly. Do you, do you and, take and, down statues and of And those scientists that? that created the Manhattan Project should all be cited <laughs> as war criminals because 200,000 Japanese died when they dropped the bombs on them. I, I mean, let's face it. Let's, let's go. Yeah, let's it, could just, it. it could just you know? run. A, a and and let's stop all the hospitals now, your MRIs and your, and your you know, any, any other device that, that uses any type of radioactive substance, shut them all down because that was bad what we did. There comes a time when you have to analyze the history and actually utilize. Yeah, you cannot, yes, there was bad, but there was a lot of good that came out of it. You can't judge history by the standards we have today of how do we judge people today. So you just can't do that. But at the same time, you can't forget what has happened. No, so and and, they, and maybe that's where we have a problem is the residential school program. Nobody wanted to look at it. Yeah. Yes, they wanted to just brush it under the rug when they knew that there was atrocities going on. There was a problem. And, uh, yeah, we need to address that. And I don't think, it, to this day, I don't think it's been properly addressed. Mm. They've, they've opened their eyes to it, but... We're working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no, I think it's, I think it, as I say, it's, it, it's, it's just a wonderful discussion. There are so many different different parts to it. I mean, that's what happens when you give people brains, they use them, you know? <laughs> that's right, that's right. That's what we're doing, discussing. That's right. All right, my dear Nancy. Oh, are we, we get, ready? What do you get for us today? All righty, here we go. Do we have a this day in history? We're, we've got this day in history. Right. Why not? 
you know, another week, another historical, historical sure, set of events. Let's let's tear show. into them. And as we know, it's a roundup of those events and people that altered and illuminated the days between August the 28th and September the 3rd. And it's really fun to do this day in history while we're talking about history, revisionist history, accurate history, abusive history, challenged history. Well, so I, I here like, we go. I like that revisionist history. Revisionist history. Like yeah. August the 28th was Dream Day, which was the day that Martin Luther King gave his speech, I Have a Dream. I have is, a dream. Yeah, fabulous speech. In 1837, two things happened that are, are kind of quirky and, and fun, is that two pharmacists, John Lee and William Perrins, those names ring a bell with anybody? John Lee and William Perrins. Yeah, Lee and Perrins. Should I leave off their first names? Should I say Worcestershire sauce? Oh. Ah, Lee and Perrins Worcestershire sauce in England. They began the manufacture of Worcestershire sauce, and it was a, um, a um, some uh, a, a recipe that a, an English lord brought back from India, and it was horrible. And they put this sauce <laughs> away. They said, "Well, we'll think of it later." And they put it away and bottled it and stuck it down in the in a basement. And a year later, they said, "You know, whatever happened to that sauce?" and just the the years um, brewing, mm-hmm. uh, fermenting, turned out terrific, and today we have da da the <laughs> and parents Worcestershire sauce, and they were pharmacists. They they had nothing to do with food at, at the beginning, there so that was a happy a happy accident. And on the same day, but in 1898, some years later, Pepsi Cola was invented mm. um, and that was in the states and initially the guy who who invented it Caleb Brandom called it Brad's drink I have no idea why but it was renamed Pepsi-Cola um, August 28th 1898 so Worcestershire sauce and Pepsi-Cola but don't don't combine them yeah. in, in history. Don't combine them. That'd be great. Or, oh, you don't want to try that now. Yeah, I wonder what Pepsi tasted yeah. like in 1898. So September the 1st is Teacher's Day, Knowledge Day, and Random Acts of Kindness Day. Ooh, so I like that. That's a good thing. So I'm going to take up most of the the rest of day in history acknowledging an absolutely wonderful woman um, whose name is Emma Gatewood. Um, Emma Gatewood, in 1955, at the age of 67, told her adult children, she had 11 children, that she's going for a walk. So they didn't ask her where or for how long because they knew she was a strong, resilient woman and would take care of herself. So Emma, or Grandma Gatewood, as she became known, was the first woman to hike the entire 2,050 miles of the Appalachian Trail by herself in 1955. If you're not familiar with the Appalachian Trail, it goes from Springer Mountain in Georgia going toward the north up the east coast to Mount Katanik, K-A-T-A, H-D-I-N, Katatin, I'm sorry, I, in Maine. <coughs> At any rate, How she, much of a break did she really need from her kids? <laughs> <laughs> At 11, with These 11 kids, kids? That's yeah. just that's just a nice start. I'm going out for a walk. <laughs> I'm going for a walk. This woman was 67 years old, 
she was a, a, a say mother of eleven and grandmother of twenty three. So oh. multiple. That's why she did. She it ran way. from home. Anyway, she <laughs> survived more than thirty years of a horrible marriage to a brutal guy who beat her repeatedly. But she was a big reader. She could she read everything that she got her hands on. And about five years prior to this, she read an article in the National Geographic about the Appalachian Trail and thought, oh, that'd be a nice lark. (laughs) Although in retrospect, considering the difficulty, she said it really wasn't. But the magazine gave her the impression of easy walks and clean cabins at the end of each day's walk. And after all those kids and grandkids, it really looked like it would be a, a great adventure for her. So she took very little in the way of out door gear because she thought there were places along the way that she'd be able to to eat and and buy food or have whatever it is that she needed. So she put on her kids' sneakers and carried an army blanket, a raincoat, and a plastic shower curtain in a homemade denim bag, and she slung that over the shoulder. It was a pretty large bag. If you see the the pictures of her, it was, it was pretty substantial. She didn't bring a sleeping bag um, or a, a tent or a compass or a map. She relied on the hospitality of strangers along the way and the fact that she was independent and very resourceful. So if she had to, she slept in a front porch swing, under a picnic table, on a bed of leaves whenever necessary, and she ate um, things that she thought would last her without going bad. So here's what she carried in that in that huge sack, which I think is kind of kind of funny. She had Vienna sausages, raisins, peanuts, greens that she found on the trail, um, a change of clothes, bouillon cubes, powdered milk. Band-Aids, a bottle of iodine, bobby pins, ladies know the bobby pins are to pin your hair back, and a jar of Vicks salve, slippers, a gingham dress that she could shake out if she ever needed to, in case you wanted to look nice. Slippers? Slippers. Why the hell is she going to use slippers? Well, I guess guess to sneak up on birds. I don't (laughs) really know. Just, I guess, to be comfortable, you know? And a warm coat the shower curtain to keep the rain off and drinking water, a Swiss army knife, a flashlight, candy mints, her pen, and a little royal memo book that she bought for 25 cents. Hmm. That was it. That's that's her, you know, rough uh, um, uh, goods, yeah. you know, yeah. for, for the trip. So off she goes in September <clears throat> and uh, as she as she took this walk, she survived a rattlesnake strike, two hurricanes, a run-in with gang, uh, gangsters, and a bear. And finally, when she stood atop that mountain in Maine, she sang the first verse of America the Beautiful and said, I said I'd do it, and I did it. She was really something. So she returned in a year later and did the same thing actually it was in 1957 she did the she did it all over again and she was the first person male or female to successfully tackle the trail twice she said the second time was so she could enjoy it she already <laughs> she already knew what it was like so she completed it again in 1964 then she did it in sections becoming the first to hike it three different times so in 1959, between all those hikes, she went west, walking from Independence, Missouri to Portland, Oregon, as part of the Oregon Centennial Celebration. She left two weeks 
after a wagon train, but then she passed it. She actually covered more ground in quicker time. <laughs> in, in Idaho, she caught up with them. So that was 2,000 miles and took 95 days. So Ben Montgomery is a Pulitzer Prize finalist and a reporter for the Tampa Bay Times, and he uh, he wrote a book called Grandma Gatewood's Walk, the inspiring story of a woman who saved the Appalachian Trail. And that was in 2014, and that made the Times bestseller. And if uh, anyone is interested, there's a documentary that was put out called Trail Magic, and that came out, I think, in, two, in 2016. Um, and... If you go to um, you, you go to the internet and um, um, Google her, you'll you'll see she just looks like a regular regular grandma. You wouldn't expect to you know to see her as a star athlete anything, but the grit and the determination of this woman. She's one of the people you know they say. Here's an empty park bench. Who would you like to talk to? She would be one of the people that I would absolutely love love to talk to to see what what kept her going, what motivated her, and and what she saw along the way. Just fabulous. You know full well if she came back home and her husband, her bad husband, just said, "Hey, what's for dinner?" <laughs> I'm sure he after did. being gone for a year. Yeah, you know. absolutely. In 1991, on that same date. Um, um, Madeline Murray O'Hare, another woman with grit and determination, uh, wrote her. Yeah, she wrote her book "Why I Am an Atheist." Uh, good old Madeline. It's funny that we uh, that those two people, you know, on that on that same day, mm-hmm. both of them, you know, did what they needed to do in totally different ways. But you know, they, I, I am woman, hear me roar. Absolutely. Type of type of woman. September the second is Democracy Day in Tibet. And in 1912, U.S. rodeo showman Guy Wedick opened up the first Calgary Stampede Rodeo. You didn't know that it was a U.S. uh, rodeo showman that that started it. Ever been? Anybody ever been to them? No. No? Yeah. Interesting, yeah? I'm not a huge rodeo person. <laughs> yeah, no, I've seen it on TV. But anyway. At any rate, so that, dear listeners, brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasional bizarre events and people that make up this day in history. Perfect. Look at that. Timing was just perfect. The music just is closing. Nancy, you did it again. <laughs> she is amazing. She is amazing. Absolutely. Uh, she's going to be crossing the... Uh... I need that on a t-shirt that says, I'm amazing. <laughs> go for the me. amazing Nancy. The amazing Nancy. I would totally do that. I, yeah, I, have get a t- that I have a t-shirt that says, nevertheless, she persisted. But I think maybe I'm amazing would do for we, a change. We could have a course. traveling road show. Yeah. The amazing Nancy. Yeah, and we could sell tickets, Kevin. I would totally do that. <laughs> You all have to come with me, though. I'm, yeah, yeah. You know, we can her, sell tickets. You know, Nancy's birthday is coming up in a few uh, months, so uh, that's her. That's her present. I get her a T-shirt. I am amazing. Got it. Yeah. The amazing Nancy. <laughs> the amazing Nancy. All right. Well, moving on. Let's do our segment that we always love, called another brilliant moment. Brought to you by religion. Now, did you guys? <laughs> There's a New Jersey priest who was trying to get revenge on God. Oh my gosh, I heard about this. Yeah, revenge oh, on God. For poker losses. He, he collected computerized child pornography at his weekend home in Pennsylvania. The revenge of the priest, I don't know. So this is the Reverend Kevin Gugliota. Sounds like a mobster. 
of uh, Maywell. He was sentenced to uh, 11 and a half to 23 and a half months uh, in Wayne County Jail, receiving credit for 10 months he's already served. He pleaded guilty to a single count of disseminating child porn. Uh, the records show Gugliotta told probation officers he felt God was attacking him when he lost poker tournaments and games, and he got revenge by collecting the porn. <laughs> that'll show God. That'll Boy, show God. that'll show him. <laughs> do we believe him, or do we think that that's just an excuse? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe he was an avid poker player. Maybe he couldn't deal with God's bullshit anymore. You know? <laughs> that's okay. I hear you, there's a full house in that jail anyway. <laughs> oh, <my gosh. laughs> oh, anyway. <laughs> he went all in with the child porn. <laughs> okay. Um, second story. As the death toll and pro- uh, property damage in Texas continues to rise because of that uh, hurricane there, you guys heard Ann Coulter? Oh, my gosh. Ann Coulter, which is the female version of Skeletor, has a theory as to the cause. Uh, she says, poor building, climate change. No, no, no. Coulter, that may... That may that, it may all be part of God's punishment for the city of Houston electing a lesbian mayor. Uh, what? Uh, hey, science man. Yeah. <laughs> the homophobic slight kid is a rebuttal to a political magazine article titled Harvey is what climate change looks like. And the other woman Coulter references is Houston's first openly lesbian mayor, Anise uh, Parker, who served till last year. So she, she said that in a tweet, right? The latest yeah. tweet is just one of Coulter's many anti-LGBT comments. Well, the mayor is a black guy of Houston. The well, yeah, the, the, the last mayor they had. Oh, the last She served oh. till last year. Oh, okay. Right. So she says homosexual behavior should be discouraged as a public health risk, and also gay marriage is not a civil right. Where's the public health risk? I'm trying to figure this out. Well, the hurricanes, obviously. <laughs> Jeez, oh, man. Well, Get, oh, I see. Okay. Jeez, man. God gets mad at you and yeah, then throws yeah, a hurricane yeah. at you. You know, speaking of hurricane, did you guys also hear that uh, Canada, and especially Quebec, is offering to help Houston in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, and it's ready for uh, for when officials say they need it. Uh, this is from the Minister of International Relations, Christine Sampierre. Saint-Pierre says she spoke with Texas Secretary of State Rolando Pablos Tuesday, early morning, uh, early afternoon, offering to send equipment and crews to help restore power, provide blankets, bed, pillows, hygienic products, and all that. Well, Pablos declined the aid, asking for prayers for the people of Quebec. What? Yes. You don't need power. We got prayers. So there should be like a semi, an empty trailer right now. So, So who was it that declined? This is uh, uh, Ronaldo Pablos. He's the Texas Secretary of State. Wow, he's an idiot. Yes. <laughs> well, it, I That's think it's great. Just, just an aside, I think it's wonderful. Canada and Mexico both uh, um, offered to send aid, and they were both turned oh, turned Me- out. I think Mexico maybe because too? the states. Me- Me- oh yeah, there Mexico some, offered. Wow. Big there are some Mexican yeah. crews there, yeah. but the media is shying away from reporting on that. Yeah. It's like the Americans don't want. People to know that they need help. Yeah. They don't. It's like too much pride, right? It's it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. So Saint Pierre also offered the help of Hydro Quebec crews, which are in part of a mutual assistance group connecting electricity utilities in North America's northeast region. The group also provides assistance in major events outside the territory. Um, Saint Pierre says that Hydro Quebec sent 250 technicians in the aftermath of Katrina. Remember Katrina happened? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the two th- uh, uh, which caused severe damage, more than 1,800 deaths in seven states in 2005. So, 
They don't need our help. They need our prayers. No, I think... As I recall. Actually, there there are several countries that have have stepped up and said, when you need us, we'll be glad to come. Uh, As I recall... uh, I don't know if it was Hydro-Quebec, I think it was Nova Scotia crews were down in the States for a, af- the aftermath of a, a storm on the eastern seaboard. And they said, uh, they actually reported back saying that people were coming out with cups of hot chocolate for them. They would see them show up on the street and go, oh God, you're here to help us. And they'd come out with coffee and, and hot chocolate yeah, of course, yeah. for them. <laughs> Yeah, and, so and also like, I guess I guess Texas is too proud and just says no, no, we'll pray about it. You just go away. I haven't heard about the Canadian uh, military uh, the dart program. The Canadian military's got this dart program, which is really, really good. They have these fantastic filters, and they provide clean water. Yes, and it, yeah, it's actually one of the best teams in the world that we have here in Canada. I haven't heard them if they've been deployed to Texas, but you know. well, the Americans have their own. The American forces have much the same system. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. To be fair, they you know they've got the, they've got fifty <laughs> states and they've got a lot of help coming yeah. from from different states. But as the the rehabilitation and rebuilding goes, some of the expertise that uh, maybe they're short of in in the states, maybe they'll welcome uh, welcome you know some of the additional. Yeah. There's going to be help. there's going to be a need for a lot of crews to go down there and. Uh, uh, with, like you said, renovations and, yes. and fixing buildings and that's okay. I think I think right now we should load a tractor trailer and a container full of thoughts and prayers. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, just send that, those, they you know? they might appreciate that. Yeah, just that's... open the doors and when you see it's a completely empty, a whole bunch of bags that says thoughts and prayers and toss those out. That's what they want. I I like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for that, guys. So we're going to take a pause right now, and we'll be right back with Jonathan Baker, and we'll be talking about the climate, the Paris Climate Change Accord. Stay with us. Hi, I'm the Supreme Irreverend Dr. Randy Tyson from the Legion of Reason Diversion. Join me and my co-hosts, Christine Shelska, Twyla, and Nate Phelps, as we explore issues at the intersection of atheism, humanism, and skepticism. Topics range from alternative medicine to the interference of religion in public policy. We often have special guests to help us understand the topic du jour. Previous guests include biologist Jerry Coyne, ex-Muslim author Ali Rizvi, philosopher Peter Bogosian, and the late physicist Victor Stanger. You can watch us on the Legion of Reason YouTube channel or subscribe to the audio version through your favorite podcatcher such as iTunes or Stitcher. And don't forget to like the Legion of Reason Facebook page. A Canadian, a New Yorker, and a Southern Belle walked into a podcast. And all hell broke loose. Seriously, though, what happens when we three ladies get together? Well, definitely a lot of talking. And accents. Funny accents. Well, I don't have an accent, but my co-hosts sure do. We mix North, South, and the Great White North together for two hours of pure secular discussion. Nothing is off-limits. From goofy religions like Scientology, woo like ghost hunting and alternative medicine, to hardcore history, hermeneutics, sex, and science, we cover it all. What the heck is a hermeneutic? Well, it's not a guy named Herman who sings falsetto, that's for sure. Join Beth, Ashley, and myself, Deborah, every Monday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, and we take you beyond the trailer park and bring the conversation to life. 
Join us live on YouTube and participate in the conversation via the Q&A system, or catch us later on Spreaker, Stitcher, iTunes, and Nobex. Visit www.beyondthetrailerpark.com for links to the show and our upcoming schedule. Bring your wine and sweet tea and settle in for fun facts and free thinking. We happily wear the explicit tag, though, so make sure to wash out your mouth with something tasty before listening. That's live at 9.30 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. Come give us a like and a share, no matter what type of accent you have. I'm the satellite Flying cross and round When I watch you You'll be watching me from the solid ground From the solid ground Oh, so lonely Voting on and passing by The amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. You are all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution weren't created at the beginning of time. They're created in the nuclear furnaces of stars and the only way they can get into your body is if the stars were kind enough to explode. So forget Jesus. The stars died so that you could be here today. Okay? And, and anyway... So joining us online once again is our old friend Jonathan Bakers. He's the paleoclimatologist. I love saying that word. He's a snappy dresser and a snazzy dancer. Jonathan, welcome back to the Fraser Valley. Well, thank you. It's great to be here again. Awesome. So I, I hear you made a little move from Vegas to Iowa? That's correct. On purpose? I'll be uh, out here. Yeah, on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was actually nice to get away from Vegas for a while. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to stay there too long. Awesome. You'll be able to actually convince more people of climate change in Iowa, too. Uh, it's, it's a hot topic here. I'm yeah. sure it is. <laughs> so, Jonathan, <laughs> last time you were on the show, we, uh, we, we went on to global warming on great lengths, and uh, we kind of ran out of time, and we wanted to uh, talk about the uh, Paris uh, Climate uh, Change Accord, uh, which we never really got into at the time. It was a big topic, so we thought we'd bring you back to talk about this and how I propose to do this in the... Uh, shadow of uh, Hurricane Harvey. So would mm. you be so kind to maybe describe to our audience what exactly was the Paris, uh, pirate, <laughs> Paris Climate Change Accord? Um, so the Paris Accord was part of an ongoing effort to get a global agreement to uh, uh, you know, commit to reducing our carbon emissions and, and therefore mitigating uh, global warming in the long run. Uh, so to I mean, to oversimplify, perhaps, it's, it's basically getting as many countries as possible together to say, yes, we're going to, uh, we'll make a pledge to cut our emissions and do our part so that uh, everyone can benefit. <clears throat> um, I mean, this really, the, the Paris Agreement itself began 
uh, probably in, after 2009, there was something of a failed effort to get a international binding agreement between countries, and they had to look back at you know, what what was difficult about this diplomatic effort, you know, uh, getting everyone to sign on to a, a common mission statement and so forth. Uh, so this has you know been many almost a decade in the making. I mean, at this point, and finally, uh, they were able to come to some sort of agreement. Um, it's it's worth noting that the main goal of the Paris Agreement is to uh, mitigate global warming to only two degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average. You know, the pre-industrial average is the average temperature before the industrial era really uh, started contributing significantly to uh, climate change. Now, it, it doesn't sound like a whole lot, two degrees, but as far as you guys are concerned, the scientists are concerned, this is huge, two degrees. Uh, to put that in perspective, the we, let's go back to the peak of the last ice age. That's 21,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, you know, that's when all of uh, northern Europe and Canada was covered in a mile-thick sheet of ice. Yeah, Nancy remembers that time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so at the I peak of the last ice age... I haven't recovered from it. <laughs> I mean, from, from the peak of the last ice age to uh, the end of the 19th century, uh, Earth's surface saw about 4 degrees Celsius of warming. Seriously. And that's the, that's the difference between the peak of an ice age and the world that we knew at the end of the 19th century. So I, so, I think that's worth repeating. The difference between an ice age and what we have currently was four degrees. That's correct. And since the end of the 19th century, we've already seen at least one degree Celsius of warming in average wow. surface temperatures. Wow. Okay. So, so the goal is to mitigate uh, warming or, or limit it to two degrees Celsius above that average, uh, with a high-reaching, optimistic goal of limiting it to only one and a half degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. However, it's worth noting that last February, uh, the average surface temperature was uh, very close to that one and a half. <laughs> it was relatively close to that one and a half degrees Celsius. Oh. Just that's just a single month, and that was a peak of an El Nino season. Uh, but still, uh, we're we're Extremely close. So, probably most important to point out here, though, uh, the, the Paris Agreement is not about solving the problem of global warming. Yeah. We've already recognized that the, the harm has been done, the emissions have been put out there, there's a lot of inertia in the climate system. We know it's going to continue to warm, and that uh, we are already seeing consequences of global warming, and they'll uh, get worse. Uh, this is not meant to be a solution, as though we could reverse it, stop it, or anything like that. It's, it's meant to mitigate the consequences as much as possible uh, to save as much as we can. Yeah, so essentially the Paris Accord is for us to, uh, to put a metaphor, to start pulling on the brake, essentially, of climate change. Right. Okay. So uh, how, how was the Paris Climate Accord received worldwide? Well, I, uh, it's a good question. It seems like, it seems like <laughs> most countries responded well. Yeah, in many countries, yes. And if if you look at international attitudes, uh, you know, in in most countries in Latin America and Asia, for example, there's been an increase in the public perception of the severity of climate change. You know, they they've uh, grown over the last decade to be more and more concerned about global warming and uh, more interested in efforts to mitigate it. That's true in Latin America and Asia, a few other places in between. Um, 
not so much in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, there's just a slight. There's been a decrease, or a significant decrease, in the interest in the topic, the, uh, the public attitudes toward the severity of it, and so forth. Uh, so, uh, in countries like the U.S. and Great Britain, and even Australia, for example, uh, people, have, you know, there's growing opposition, there's growing skepticism, and there's a growing concern that uh, something like the Paris Accord is going to cost us more than it will benefit us. Uh, and that, that's what's really spawned a lot of the um, opposition, which in, which in Great Britain and in Australia, for example, really, it didn't overtake those political efforts or the, the, wide, you know, the, the public perception at large, but in the U.S. it has. Mm. And, and that's led to us, you know, electing a president who ran on a, uh, a platform that says we're going to pull out of this agreement. We're not going to put any money into it. Uh, this is just, you know, baloney. It's not worth our time. Uh, it's overblown and so forth. Kind of makes you wonder what kind of accord would uh, Donald Trump not find baloney? You know, I'd be kind of curious to see that draft. Yeah, I would... Um, I, I don't know. It's it's really <laughs> strange. Uh, you know, and I think the problem is that uh, the F, I mean the the discussion of the Paris Accord, what it can do, just needs to be rephrased. Um, so let's I mean, talk about that opposition for a second. Like, mm-hmm. what what is his reasoning behind pulling out of the agreement or garnering support uh, to pull out of the agreement? I mean, most Americans. Uh, nearly 7 in 10 Americans actually uh, support staying in the Paris agreements regardless of who they elected or voted for, uh, so, which means that most of Trump supporters, I mean, or at least a, a large portion of Trump supporters, don't care for his uh, decision here. Or they don't agree with it. They don't support it. Um, but that doesn't really matter <laughs> to him. Uh, so... But his reasoning, nonetheless, the way he's trying to get people on his side is by saying, well, this is just an economic issue. It's going to cost us billions and billions of dollars. It's not going to do anything. And that's the end of the story. Yeah. Like, it's going to cost us in the economy, but then in the other, on the other side of the, the balance, it's the entire planet. Jeez. Right. What a hard decision which is, that is. Um, which is flatly wrong. It's just absolutely wrong. I mean, we, know that, uh, we know that cutting emissions at this point uh, has... Uh, actually saves us money in the long run. There is this concept called the social cost of carbon, for example, and, and that is how many dollars will it cost us in losses uh, for each ton of carbon that we emit into the atmosphere, or each ton of carbon dioxide that we emit in the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, that's a very difficult thing to calculate or estimate, um, but we know that the number is not zero, and, and the best estimates at this point are about $27 per ton. Mm. And if you consider that we emit collectively about 35 billion tons per year of carbon dioxide, uh, that adds up to nearly a trillion dollars per year in economic losses around the globe. Uh, An example of economic losses are from storms, uh, flooding and hurricanes and things like that that are stronger than they would have been without global warming. Uh, Economic losses in agricultural productivity that is lost. Uh, For example, this uh, very recently and, you know, while we had a hurricane here, there was extreme flooding in India, Bangladesh. Uh, this wiped out just hundreds of thousands of hectares of agricultural lands, mm-hmm. at least temporarily. 
I, these, these are the sorts of losses. These are, this is money that we're just flushing down the toilet. Uh, and so when when Trump comes out and says we're we just don't want to spend the money to do this, what he's actually saying is uh, we'd rather just flush that money down the toilet than let it go to a cause that was you know championed by our opponents, our political opponents. Is, is it possible that maybe in the mind of these uh, political figures, they see it as inevitable anyway? Why waste the money trying to fight something you cannot win against? Uh, the, the problem with this topic and, and the nature of politics is that um, most people are looking at short-term plans. You know, for the next year, let's get us through the next five years, and that's that's all they really care about. Uh, something like the Paris Agreement is looking at the next century of consequences, and, and so in his mind, uh, if we can please and and keep wealthy certain industries, that's enough reason to discount any advice to the contrary hmm. mm-hmm. okay what do you what do you what do you make of the the combination in the states within the within the government of both the evangelical um, um, uh, uh, young earth creationists and, and their religious views about um, so-called climate change that don't believe in and the industrial people who donate zillions of dollars to the Republican mm-hmm. Party so that they can keep polluting and keep doing what they uh, what they always do without without regulation do you think that that combination is is um, toxic to um, working with climate change in in the United States States? Um, yes and no. I mean, the, the coincidence of uh, support from the industrial sector and uh, the more conservative religious sector of the U.S. is, it, I mean, it's not an accident, uh, but it moves, it's, it, it moves from one direction. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, last time we asked about you know, what was the motivation for skepticism in a place like the U.S. And, and I said, just if it's just one word, it's politics. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you, you do find, for example, in the U.S. that the majority of those, uh, the, say the majority of evangelicals in the U.S. Uh, are more skeptical of climate change. They're more skeptical that uh, the globe is warming. They're skeptical that it's a serious problem or that we can fix it. That's not true in all countries. Uh, if you go to Britain, for example, uh, the religious public tends to lean left, not right. And most opposition and skepticism of climate change is on the right, not the left. Mm. So you find a different attitude of the religious public toward climate change. If you go to Latin America, it's the religious public that's really leading uh, the fight against climate change and, and are most interested in, in solving this problem. Uh, for example, uh, let's see, in the U.S., you can, you can tell what's really motivating this. Uh, there's, a, there's a survey by the Public Religion Research Institute. This is from 2014, but the numbers haven't changed that much. Uh, and this was uh, surveying public attitudes toward climate change, uh, how concerned we are, etc., uh, how much we accept the scientific consensus, and it breaks it down not only by religious affiliation, but also by ethnicity. And we find that the group that is most accepting of the scientific consensus in the U.S., the most concerned about climate change, are Hispanic Catholics. Really? In fact, they're far more accepting of the science and more concerned about global warming than even atheist agnostics and unaffiliated. 
Well, that well, did, in large, in some measure, I guess the the Pope has has come out right. in favor. Yeah, that, that's a good point. But yeah. here's here's the kicker: the most skeptical group in the U.S. are white Catholics. Weird. Huh. So there's a huge divide between Hispanic and white Catholics. That's also true for Protestants. The most accepting Protestant group are black Protestants. The most skeptical group are white evangelicals. Freaking Caucasians, man. (laughs) And so so you find and you've got, uh, you know, other um, other mainline Protestant and Jewish groups and and others in the middle, uh, kind of with the unaffiliated Americans. So. You know, what, what's the deal with that? You know, what's the difference between Hispanic and white Catholics? It's not as though they recognize a different pope or listen to a different pope. Uh, they're, they're not reading different Bibles, etc. They don't have, you know, greatly different theologies. The difference is that Hispanic and black Americans tend to lean Democrat. They tend to lean left, whereas whites, uh, evangelicals and Catholics tend to lean right. So it's really the political attitude that's driving attitudes among the religious public. And because in the U.S., the religious public tends to lean right, they've grouped together with this uh, global warming skepticism, and they're driving a lot of it. That's why somebody like Trump can come out, and his only chance to win is to get all of those states that are most uh, religious, so to speak, you know, at least have most people who identify in this crowd. Uh, the most white, the most conservative religious groups. Uh, and to appeal to them, he's he's used this to differentiate his party from uh, the, the Democratic Party of Obama and, and the Clintons. See, that's interesting yeah. because I thought as soon as you said that, my, my first thought uh, when you went to uh, Democrats versus Republicans, my first thought was not that, but it was socioeconomic. Because I thought, you know, if you got a, uh, economically speaking, if you're a white per, uh, white middle urban family driving around in your SUV it's very, mm-hmm. with air conditioning on it's very hard to think about how hot of a day it is outside for, <laughs> for, for Pedro out there who's actually in the garden somewhere right yeah that's that could be true um, I mean, it, it, it really is it comes down to money uh, and specifically you know somewhat in, in the, the solutions the offered solutions to mitigating climate change because it's going to cost money somewhere. We're going to have to make an investment. Uh, and as much as you can argue that that investment pays off in the long term, it has a return, uh, that doesn't matter. The upfront money is what matters to a lot of Americans. So when, when Trump comes out and says, we're, going to, we're not going to spend billions of dollars, we're going to save billions of dollars by pulling out of this agreement, uh, that resonates with all Americans who at least pay lip service to this idea of cutting uh, federal spending and cutting taxes and so forth, but that especially resonates with the uh, conservative, mostly conservative, mostly white uh, regions that he won handily. Now, uh, what's, what's ironic about that is that I mean, there, are, like I said, there are consequences. There's a social cost uh, to carbon emissions, and the regions in the U.S. There was a, a study that came out within the last year looking at how global warming impacts each state individually. And the states that are most uh, detrimentally impacted by continued warming are all the states that voted Republican in this last election. And these are the ones predominantly in the southeast that will suffer more losses from agricultural productivity loss and uh, from excess flooding and hurricanes and and tornadoes and things like that. Hmm. Interesting. There's, so, there's something uh, no, else I've noticed about the uh, the Paris Accord. Usually when the U.S. pulls in one direction, 
a lot of low countries will pull with it. You're kind of finding that excuse. It's been in the past for some of the, the Kyoto Accord and stuff like that. U.S. didn't yeah. want to do it. Other countries, even Canada, decided to pull out of it because of that. Um, but this really hasn't happened with the Paris Accord. It seems like U.S. are pretty much on their own, aren't they? Uh, yeah, and I think I think a large part has to do with the the international. Uh, how would you say <laughs> the the international disinterest in in Trump, uh, <laughs> the, the the international global confusion by what just happened here? Uh, they're not really on board with him, and and it's it's quite fortunate that a lot of countries haven't followed in step. So so maybe in in a weird twisted way. Maybe Trump is the best thing that happened to climate change science. In a way. <laughs> you know, it's that's that's a good point. Um, you know, I was going to say so. It, on on the one hand, you've know, got the U.S., which uh, historically had been the largest uh, polluter. In I mean, if if we want to look at totals over the last century, the U.S. is by far the largest polluter and contributor to climate change. All uh, in terms of annual. Uh, emissions, China has now surpassed us, but then again, they've got triple our population, so that's not, you know, not a, <laughs> it's nothing to be excited about here in the U.S. Uh, in any case, uh, the, probably the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel here is despite that we may be pulling out of this agreement, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean we won't meet the targets anyways. Uh, and that's because Trump can't tell each state what to do in their energy policy, in their infrastructure investments, and so forth. And the states that are the largest energy producers also tend to be uh, the ones that are not on board with Trump. They, you know, they're heavily opposed to his policies. They're heavily opposed to him pulling out of this agreement. And they've actually stepped up their commitments. And you know, states like California have said, no, we're going to cut emissions even more. Uh, it's our money, not yours. It's our decision, not yours. And uh, in the end, it may be that uh, the U.S. will meet its Paris targets. Unwillingly. E either way, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it, you could also look at things like, um, I mean, in, in the U.S., renewables have grown uh, exponentially, as with most other countries. Uh, now wind accounts for about 5.5% of all energy, uh, or, of, of national energy production. Most of that comes from just 12 states. Um that have already implemented the uh, that into their grids, uh, and and you have some days. It's it's quite interesting. Some days where the entire southwestern U.S. grid may get half of its power from wind alone, and you have individual states like Iowa that produce about a third of its power from wind alone. Yeah. And, and so we're making That's progress cool. on this. We'll continue to make progress on this, whatever Trump decides to do. Uh, in fact, the the states. Maybe I'll ask you to guess which states out of 50, do you think produces more wind energy than any other? It was, it was, if it was hot air, I would have said Washington, D.C. But that's not <laughs> uh, Produces more wind power. I don't know. I'll give you a hint. The, the two states that, oh, here, we'll look at the two states that produce more than any other. Uh, neither voted for, uh, neither voted for Clinton, both voted for Trump. Hmm. It's probably a flat state. Something like Michigan. It is Texas. Oh, really? Texas uh, produces more than, I think, more than 36. Oh, I got to look at that figure again. Okay, scratch that. But <laughs> I bet it, it. So you're uh, telling me Texas, you know, backyard of the pump jack, oil pump jack kings, mm -hmm. is actually 
producing more wind energy than any, uh, than most of the other states? Right. Uh, currently, it's 36 million megawatt hours of electricity. Not currently. That's from a few years ago. So that's increased since. Wow. Impressive. And that's more than twice as much as any other state. Iowa follows it uh, with just under 20 million uh, megawatt hours. Do you do you happen to know if that was like a, a state initiative or was that under the previous administration under Barack Obama? Or uh, how did how did all these wind turbines so up in Texas? For a long time, I mean, for the last few decades, uh, both under Bush and Obama, uh, the federal government has given tax credits to renew, you know, put invest. Essentially, they've invested into wind and solar. Uh, infrastructure. That's to bring the price down through research and also to uh, implement uh, turbines and, and solar panels where it was maybe unaffordable or not economically feasible uh, through private uh, investments. So in doing that, they brought the price down considerably to the point where wind is now uh, a wind a wind farm now in in terms of the energy it produces produces the same amount of energy as a natural gas plant for the same price. Hmm. Wow. And that's sorry that's without any tax subsidies. Wow. So that's just the flat cost. Right now, however, uh, with those tax credits, it brings the price down. Uh, it nearly cuts the price in half. Wow. So currently, in in sectors like the Midwest, including Iowa. Uh, wind energy is fifty percent cheaper than coal. So, so, so if the, if this has gone, because you know for the longest time they've they've been saying, and you still hear it in the media, oh, we can't have solar plants, we can't have wind turbines, the technology is too expensive, blah blah blah. If mm -hmm. what you're saying is correct, and these costs have come down, why haven't they turned? How how come the green revolution hasn't quite arrived yet? I, I think in one sense you can say it has because uh, the the wind and solar, just looking at wind and solar, those those two um, technologies have expanded exponentially every single year over the past decade, and the cost has plummeted exponentially every single year. Uh, we're now at this tipping point where at least across 30 developed nations internationally, uh, solar and wind are the cheapest forms of energy production. Uh, in, in countries like uh, China, they've, they've already committed um, just in, insane amounts, like I, I think more than $150 billion in expanding their wind production, and, and that's to replace a lot of the coal factories that they can now don't have to open. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and a lot of this is just uh, you know, because it's economically feasible. It's not just that it's, uh, it's cleaner energy, it's not contributing to warming, but it's it's just cheaper. And, and in the case like Texas, that's why it's expanded to the extent that it has. When you have an entire army base run on pretty much on wind power alone. Uh, and and local, I mean, sorry, locals just trying to power their farms and, and small towns and in this very spread out uh, grid uh, are relying more and more on wind power just because it's cheaper. Okay. And that's going to continue to uh, plummet. So uh, this this trend should only continue in the future. I, I don't know how fast uh, we could expect that. And, of course, you get some political fights, especially locally, people trying to fight back, the utilities companies trying to uh, 
uh, counteract this move, but it's it's not working. <laughs> that's that's just what I was going to ask you, Jonathan, because I, in, in some states, if you could clarify, in some states where a homeowner puts in solar panels or they have wind power and the local utilities are losing money, haven't they? Haven't the states made some arrangements where people have to pay a token minimum amount to the utility companies just to keep them uh, happy uh, or or what, whatever deals you know that the utility companies make with the, with the various states, I probably have that totally backwards, but I, but I know no, you're straightening it out. That's right. Um, I'll give you examples from uh, Arizona and Nevada. Uh, there was a huge boom in in adding solar panels to the roof, and the deal was if you add your solar panels, if you produce more energy than you need, then the utilities would buy it back from you. And that made it fairly uh, cost efficient. You'd save money in the long run having those solar panels on your roof. Um, That was going fine. But the problem is the utilities companies had had a monopoly on the energy production for as long as electricity had been installed. And for the first time ever, they'd had to compete. And that didn't turn out so well for them. So in, in states like Arizona and Nevada, they just reversed their policies that we're not going to buy energy back from you. Uh, it's essentially just screwed everyone over that had installed or paid to have these installed. Uh, luckily, I mean, it took, it took a legislative cycle, but in Nevada, for example, we did pass a measure uh, with the last election um, that said the utilities were not allowed to have a monopoly. And they had to play by normal rules. And so that trend is, you know, where the solar industry here is picking back up where it left off. That's fantastic to hear. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So I guess I guess we got to turn the, the subject here to uh, the recent events of uh, Houston. And uh, because it's right next door. Uh, although we did glance over the uh, the floods in India and Bangladesh and all that for the monsoon right. season. Um, you as a uh, paleoclimatologist and in your circle of very smart scientific friends. Do you guys have no doubt in your mind that uh, Harvey was probably stronger than it should have been? Uh, no, I mean, that's that's just a matter of fact, put yeah. that way. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, for the longest time when Harvey was a tropical storm, until it hit very warm waters right off the coast, and then it just went to hurricane mode really, really quick. And uh, have, can we expect more of... I guess it's a silly question, but can we expect more Harveys in the future? Yeah, and it's, so the link between uh, global warming and tropical storms is, yeah, it's, it's long been investigated, uh, and it wasn't always certain how we could do it. Uh, but it's, to give an analogy, it's kind of like trying to investigate the link between tobacco and cancer. Uh, and, and for example, I like I... Like many of you have had a, a relative who's uh, who was a heavy smoker and did die of lung cancer, and if you, in, in cases like that, it's it's tempting to say, well, you know, that's that's what happens. You know, you you smoked and that's why you got cancer. But scientifically speaking, medically speaking, it's not possible to attribute with certainty uh, a single cause to a single case of cancer. You can't say in that case. Even somebody might have smoked two packs a day for forty years, uh, and it might have been. Argon or sorry, radon that they were breathing in that caused the cancer, and we all breathe in radon. Uh, there are a number of, of causes, and you just can't pin it down to a single cause. And so, in this case, you can't say, you know, this particular hurricane, this particular storm was caused by 
uh, global warming or that it was caused by some natural cycle. You just, you, you can't say that. Um, so for a long time, we were kind of uncertain, how, you know, how to attribute warming or, or climatic warming to changes in tropical storms. Uh, but you can say statistically, for example, uh, that you know, tobacco use does increase your risk of cancers or certain cancers, right? Uh, and in the same way, we can say warming the atmosphere, warming the oceans, increases the risk of certain types of hurricanes. Uh, the link is tricky, though, um, because there are two factors to hurricane production. I mean, first of all, hurricanes have to form. And for them to form, it requires uh, a certain stability or instability. Sorry, it requires a certain stability in the lower atmosphere. Uh, and global warming tends to make that a little more unstable. Hmm. And events like El Nino's tend to make it more unstable. Uh, essentially, the vertical wind shear uh, dissipates the storm before it can strengthen and become a, a proper hurricane. Right, so so we have discovered that, or at least the physical models tell us that, as the climate warms, we should expect a slight reduction in the frequency of hurricanes, just in the absolute number of hurricanes or tropical cyclones, as they should be called. Really, a slight yeah, reduction, but, but they're gonna but they're gonna be stronger though. But right, but those that do form, uh, when those conditions are stable enough and, and the, a regular storm progresses into a tropical cyclone, uh, that's when they start gaining their energy, as you said, from the heat content of the surface oceans. Hmm. So if we warm those surface oceans, just warm it by one degree Celsius, for example, uh, that adds a huge amount of uh, heat energy into the storm. It means stronger wind speeds. It means more rainfall, uh, which means that when those storms do make landfall, they, they cause more damage than they would have otherwise. Right, and so I mean, you can think about this: uh, one degree Celsius is not a huge difference. I mean, that's that's about what the oceans there have warmed. Uh, in if you're looking at just you know a particular day or a particular year, uh, we've seen some surface oceans two or three degrees Celsius above normal. Uh, but you think about it, to, to, to raise the temperature of just one gram of water by one degree Celsius, uh, something like 4.184 joules, uh, you multiply that by how many grams of water are in the surface ocean of the Gulf of Mexico uh, over which the storm passed, and that's a, that's a massive amount of extra energy that's going into the storm production. Mm -hmm. uh, so we find that hurricane, you know, these very strong hurricanes that are Category 3 and above, Category 3 or 4 and 5 especially, uh, those are the ones that will be more frequent because the, the storms that otherwise might have been Category 3 now might jump up to Category 4 and mm -hmm. so forth. Uh, in fact, just a couple of years ago, there was a, a strong hurricane that hits uh, the coast of southwestern Mexico that before it made landfall was technically Category 7. I mean, the, wow. the, Category 7? Right. We don't even have... I mean, the cutoff is a Category 5 just because... We didn't need anything above that, but if you if you keep that category system going and, and to continue the cutoffs, it would have been a category seven. Oh, hold on, so wouldn't so that be close to like a hundred mile wide tornado? Well, uh, uh, yeah, and is it, what is it? Two hundred fifty kilometers an hour wind for a category five plus. So if a category seven, the winds are going at how fast? My God! Uh, and in this case, I think it surpassed. Uh, 
it's 200 miles per hour, which wow, is yeah, so tornado cool. force winds. In this is about yeah, three, over 320 kilometers per hour. Oh, my God. And, and imagine the amount of waterfall coming from that. The, oh. Oh, this is why I lost my umbrella. <laughs> umbrella? You would have needed scuba gear. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, so, so we, we have seen um, storms in the last few years that are just absurdly strong. Uh, and it's not, it's not as though that couldn't happen without global warming. I mean, if you can go back two or three, four hundred years, you're still going to see uh, storms occasionally that are strong like this. But now, just in the last couple of decades, we've seen so many of them. Uh, I mean, the, the, the increase in frequency of these storms is They're becoming substantial. Place. Right. Uh, and I think I should have memorized this ratio, but, you know, there, there is a set percentage, like a, a 10 or some 10 or 15 percent average increase in wind speed um, with, uh, with that one degree wow. Celsius warming that we've observed. Wow. Wow. And, and that, that does make a difference. So the last factor, of course, is uh, sea level rise. Yeah. Uh, because with these storms, the stronger the storm is, the higher the storm, uh, the, the storm surge, right? And that storm surge is what can cause a lot of that coastal flooding. You know, it just raises the sea level and brings all that water inland. That's what happened with uh, Hurricane Katrina, for example. Uh, but now, over the past century, we've seen more than a foot of, storm, uh, of sea level rise, uh, yeah, a bit, more, a bit more than a foot, and uh, that that's going to continue by at least another one to three feet uh, before the end of the century. Wow. That's that's a low ball estimate. Uh, but having that extra foot of water means that if your storm surges say one foot from this particular storm, you add a foot onto that. It's like having twice the storm surge. Wow! Right. So these storms are coming further inland than they ever would have before you know, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s when, say, a lot of the infrastructure was built. And you have areas, uh, for example, in, but not, in, not just in Texas and Louisiana uh, and, and other coastal states where people living there, they never thought to buy flood insurance because the floods never came in that far. That's Why right. would you? It, it, you know, it, the land was high enough. So it, it but, takes longer for that storm to dissipate once it gets over land because it's so powerful. Well, in, so, some, ar- in some areas, they, um, they don't even offer flood insurance so even though uh, my understanding is even though you live in an area that's subject to flooding you you can't get it or it's so expensive to get it that the average person can't afford it Hmm. right right so this is going to be um it's going to be tricky because now something you'd expect to happen once a century once every 500 years is going to be happening uh, about five times more frequently yes uh, this is something i I wanted to to mention Uh, I don't know, as a lay person, it seems to me that whenever I'm seeing a, a big storm or a, a hurricane, it's always followed by, oh, this is a once-in-a-1,000-year event. This is a once-in-a-100-year event. It seems every event now is one of those. Is that, is that, mm-hmm. is that simply just, to me, it feels like it's just not true. It just feels like it's their way of trying to uh, shy away from the whole climate change debate. This is just an observation I was making. Um, jo- Jonathan, do we do we need some? Is technology going to rescue us from, from from climate change? Do we need to create new tools to tackle that problem, or do we already have pretty much everything we need? We just need political will. Uh, no, we need technology as well. Um, you know, go back to the goals of the Paris Agreements. It's it's not, uh, I mean, there are a lot of, every country has its own, um, they get to cater their own uh, formula for reducing their emissions. 
Uh, but for some countries, it's just increasing uh, efficiency of agricultural production. You know, in places like the U.S., there isn't much room for improvement with the current technology to get more food out of the same amount of land. Uh, in a lot of countries, especially Eastern Europe and uh, Northern Africa, there's a huge potential just to implement new technologies. Um, and, and, of course, we could always develop new technologies, but I guess between gen genetic engineering and uh, good old farm machinery <laughs> efficiency, uh, combining those, uh, we can still improve uh, things like agriculture, agricultural efficiency, and that will cut emissions uh, worldwide. Right now, agriculture accounts for almost a quarter of global emissions. Mm. Uh, other things like uh, energy production, uh, of course, we want to replace all all fossil fuel productions with something that doesn't produce massive amounts of carbon emissions, right? So cut out all the coal plants, all the natural gas plants, and such. and that's that's not practical to do right away. There needs to be new technologies. The biggest challenge. Uh, with wind and solar, of course, they could meet a, a very large portion of our energy demands, but uh, they're intermittent and there isn't good enough technology to store that energy, for example, when the sun goes down and when the wind stops blowing. Uh, there are some technologies, but uh, they're not yet practical. However, if you go back 20 years ago, it wasn't practical to supply half the grid with solar and wind power. Mm -hmm even with the sun shining and the wind blowing, now it is. Mm -hmm. you know, so, so give it time, we'll figure out how to store that energy. Uh, for example, with solar farms in the daytime, they produce a lot of excess heat, and you can use that heat, uh, put it into heating up salt, for example, which, which will hold that heat, and when the sun goes down, you use that excess heat that was built up during the day to uh, try to power part of the grid at night. Mm. Right, things, things like that can... Um, they, they need improvement, they need the cost to come down, so we need more research investments, and we'll need investments to roll out the infrastructure. Uh, of course, this, I mean, this pays off incredibly. Uh, we, there's a concept in um, petroleum geology, I mean, or in, actually in the energy sector, we call it the energy returned on investment, right, the EROI. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go back to the glory days of oil, you know, think of there will be blood, uh, the movie that is and you know pumping oil out of the surface you don't even have to there's no effort you just drill a small hole and it comes rushing out and you go back to the glory days of oil and uh, the energy returned on investment uh, was something like a hundred that means you got a hundred times the energy that it took to put in to get that oil out of the ground wow. right that number though has dropped uh, considerably to where now in some places it's as low as three or five Maybe seven if you're lucky. I mean, it's lower, of course, on the unconventional resources like the oil sands where it takes a lot of energy to get the oil out. Right. Uh, it's higher. I mean, there's still lots of conventional reservoirs out there where it's where it's relatively higher. Um, but still, that number is not going to go back up. It's going to keep going down with time. You know, another decade, another two decades. Another three, it's, gonna, it's just going to keep dropping. Uh, the energy returned on investment, though, for solar and wind power uh, there's there's some debate on how to calculate that, but the number hovers around 30 to 35, hmm. which means that if we implement if we could just pay to implement the infrastructure, the return on that is uh, is is so much better than it paying for you know more oil exploration, more gas exploration. Hmm. Uh, so essentially, you know, to come back to the money issue, we're going to be saving money by implementing these technologies. 
Well, going, going back to something that you were talking about before in terms of, yes, we have the technology and we need the, the research. We need, both, we need both of those to, you know, to be able to do, to do a, a, a good job. It, it, it's scary that the current administration is so counterproductive to that in that the heads of the various cabinets are there to deconstruct the agencies rather than mm-hmm. get them to a level of protecting the environment and moving ahead. And that combined with the various um, deregulations now that say that when you you build levees or when you build seawalls, they no longer have to be built to a standard to withstand a certain amount of, of pressure, a certain amount of, of, of height of the water and so forth. So while on the one hand, we, you, the, the, the climatologists and, and people involved in this know exactly what to do, the government seems to be working as hard as they can to erase and, and deconstruct it. So in the long run, do you think that that, uh, that damage is going to significantly slow down the progress that most scientists want to make. Yeah, because for example, for example, Donald Trump just before uh, Harvey, he removed uh, flood protection standards. Seriously? Yeah, just days yeah, before actually just Harvey days hit. Before. Wow. No, not that it would have yeah. changed anything if he hadn't. But yeah. I mean, the fact that now it, it was a slap in the face. They're, they're yeah. Re- yeah. When they have to rebuild now for Houston, they're going to rebuild at what kind of standards? Yeah. Right for the next Especially one. when this kind of storm is going to be more likely to happen. Exactly. Yeah, and there's no telling whether that law can be challenged or whether it can be rescinded or a hold put on it because there's so much that's being done in in secret. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. So, John, yeah, well, sorry. I think what's happened here, it's, I think what's happened here, especially with the uh, conservative parties, is, is just nothing short of tragic. Uh, it used to be, I mean, go back to the Bush days, even go back to the Reagan days, and, and we had two parties, you know, maybe not too fervently, but uh, still arguing over the best way to uh, protect the environment, to uh, mitigate our impact on it, and, and so forth. And now it's just gone so polarized. I mean, that was true in, in Obama's first term, that the parties started to split on this issue and become extremely polarized, but now it's just, it's beyond ridiculous. And it's its hard to understand why any of this is happening, what's going to happen, um, you know, except to say that you've got a few industries that are desperately trying to save what leverage they have now while they have the chance, and they've got somebody that will listen to them. And the funny thing is, you would think that nature conservancy should be a conservative issue. You know, right. saving the money I mean, and not the, spending it. I mean, that's that's why you see that. Uh, that's perhaps why you see. It, I mean, it is an effective message. For example, um, in in many countries, and you know, whatever you think of Pope Francis, whatever you think of the Catholic Church, I mean, you got to give him credit for taking this and bringing it to the forefront of issues to say, like, if you want to consider yourself. Uh, a Christian, if you want to consider yourself a steward of the earth, then you have to be a steward of the earth, and you have to take this seriously because of the way it impacts not just plants and animals and oceans and, and all this, but the way it impacts uh, human welfare around the world. I mean, you've got some of the poorest cultures uh, suffering the most from this. And uh, I, I should bring this up. When we talked about Houston, uh, this particular hurricane directly affected about 10 million people. Wow. And given how many people were directly affected by it, uh, it's it's pretty, 
I, I don't know. It, it's it's pretty it's significant. I, I don't know what the word is, but it's it's um, fortunate that the death toll has. I mean, it's it's approaching fifty, but out of ten million, that's um, that's a pretty significant uh, mitigation for damage or for damage in, in terms of human life. But you've got you know, similar flooding events happening in India that affect directly more than 12 million there and in Bangladesh another, you know, several millions. Uh, and the death toll is, Longer. you know, in the first few days rose officially above 1,200. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what we had as well. Mm -hmm. And that's not even including uh, the, like I said, hundreds of thousands of hectares of agricultural lands mm -hmm. that they're going to somehow need to recover from. And so we see the disparity in how events like this affect um, the poorer countries, the ones that are in need, the ones that, uh, you know, if we consider ourselves religious, the ones that we're supposed to be helping first. Uh, and so it's it's really boggles my mind how in the U.S., a country that, um, you know, at least ostensibly is supposed to be, uh, you know, hold these values, uh, suddenly is, is doing everything in the opposite direction and, and trying to stifle any progress on this. Um, so it's it's going to be a challenge, you know, moving forward to get everyone out back out of this mindset. And it's, I, I don't know what's going to happen or how that can happen apart from, I don't know, some scandal removing him from office and we get maybe a, a political reset. Who knows? Who knows? We can, we <laughs> just, can only hope. <laughs> yeah. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. If people want to find out more about you and uh, discuss these issues with you, where can they find you? Uh, sure. Well, you're welcome to email me directly. Uh, my email is ageofrocks at gmail.com. That's A-G-E-O-F-R-O-C-K-S, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, and... Yeah, feel free to ask. There, I, I can direct you to other resources and such. But uh, there's, you know, there's a lot, <laughs> a lot to be talked about. It's, yeah. it's an important issue, and it's just gonna, uh, for us though, it's, it's put us in this state of just somewhere be between depression and hopelessness, and, <laughs> and trying to find some light at the end of the tunnel. I think. Well, but we've, we've got you to turn to, so you <laughs> consider yourself a permanent fixture on our show. We know we know where to go to get the right the, right. the right information. Jonathan. But I, I think Jonathan is kind of making a point here that you know uh, the the thing we need to learn about climate change is don't jump from uh, despair to non-active. You know, take a step mm -hmm. in between and do something to help the planet. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on the show, and uh, we hope to talk to you soon, sir. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here again, and I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. And that was our friend, Jonathan Baker. What a nice guy. I like that guy. I, I, really like, I like that guy, too. Very can, informative. Yeah. I could listen to him forever, it seems. He's yeah. so knowledgeable. Yeah, well, he, he covers... You know, all aspects of it. Just when you think I've got a question to ask him, he covers it. You know, so it's it's a pleasure to, to I, listen to him. I just love to say paleoclimatologist. Just, <laughs> say that five times fast. No, I'm not, but yeah. I just love saying it. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, you can uh, follow us on uh, leftatvalley.com. You can follow us on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, at LETV Podcast. You can send us an email at leftatvalley at outlook.com. You can send your complaints to Nancy at leftatvalley.com. <laughs> on the third floor. <laughs> Coming up, 
Next week, we have our old friend Del Rey. It's coming Whoa. back to talk about recovering from religion. Our favorite uh, psychologist, sexologist, whatever, call it whatever you want. On the 16th, we have uh, Michael Sparks talk to us about how Canadians felt about Bernie Sanders. And of course, on the 23rd, we have his rawness, Arn Raw. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. He's coming back. He's going to be talking about his uh, series of videos on the uh, evolution. Uh, on uh, the arc. On the arc, that's right. Yep. On the flood, that's right. And of course, we're going to cap the end of the month with the legendary Jerry Coyne to talk about evolution. Now, in October, we have a couple of uh, good authors, Williams and Grown, and we have Jump the Vegan coming up, and we also have, oh, this is going to be fun, just in time for Halloween, Andrea Gretchen. She's going to be coming to us from Australia and talk to us about the devil. Oh, fun. So this is going to be fun. Our Halloween special that we always like. And in November, we'll have author David G. McAfee. Ooh. Oh, wonderful. And he's going to be talking to us as yeah. well. God. You have a great lineup, don't you? <laughs> yeah, and he's a, he's a young guy. He's put out a lot of stuff for... He's not even 30 yet. Is yeah. he? He's a young guy. Oh, he's there. a young guy. He's, you know, yeah. he's had quite an impact on Facebook and all that. Yeah, so It's going to be interesting to talk to him. You bet. So, kind of put a lot of work on the show. Mm-hmm. Yes, you. Yes. so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you, guys. Anything else we need to say? Read Harry Potter. Uh, of course, he had to say Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much. Until next time. To bask in my own ignorance, rather be alone than surrounded by damn idiots. As long as there's a price in my body, you can bet your last dollar. I'll be working hard fighting this problem. Religion is a disease. It comes from culture. Only true on a regional scale. Science is universal. Or you to say that Horus isn't real, but Jesus is. Or Zeus, Thor, Mithra, Vishnu, you don't believe in them. Is apparent. You do what you're told and believe in the God assigned by your parents. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.